Welcome to Buckets. I'm your host, Matt Moore. Thanks for joining us this week. On this week's episode, we've got a special guest for you, Preston Johnson at Sports Cheetah on Twitter, host on Bets TV from at Bets Media, one of the best professional gambling guys when it comes to NBA. I've done bet streams with Yahoo Sports and Action Network for the NBA with him, hopefully doing that again this year. He has such a great perspective on how to bet NBA from futures to nightly sides. He's really good. He's a disciplined professional better across all sports, but NBA is one that really gets him excited, especially as a Lakers fan. We talk about all manner of things from his approach to futures to regular season to where the value is at various points in the year. We talk about the nets and the heat. We talk about the Hawks. We talk about all sorts of stuff in this episode. It's really great. Hope you guys enjoy it. Do want to tell you if you enjoy our content, make sure to check out, the Action Network app is the absolute best way for you to track your sport bets night by night. It is the fastest app for tracking scores, getting the latest information, as well as all of our analysis from the Action Network team. Also, want to tell you that if you are betting NFL, you need to be subscribed to the Action Network podcast, our NFL feed. Just search for Action Network podcast and subscribe today. You can also subscribe to The Favorites with Chad Millman and Simon Hunter from The Volume podcast network and make sure that you're checking out every week this show buckets rate review and subscribe thanks for joining me sports cheetah preston johnson joins me on the action network podcast buckets preston how are you today i'm doing great man good to talk to you again it's been a little while i know i know it's been too long i miss you in the off season we just <laughs> together uh on various bet streams and things that we've done uh throughout i'm glad to have you on again so i want to get your thoughts on the season i want to get your thoughts on where you're looking at kind of building things. The first question I kind of have for you is, you know, as a professional better, when do you start looking at NBA opportunities to bet? So uh, there's, I would say it's a little bit different for me. This year's funky just because we had the light last season and it was delayed and it's just been weird since COVID in general with the NBA. And I wanted to make sure I was ready for football and football just started and is getting going. And so I had planned kind of circled on my calendar, no joke, um, for this later this week to like start getting into my actual projections. I run simulations for the season with my MBA numbers and my model. And so I'll preface the, you know, the rest of this ongoing conversation with that. I haven't actually run them yet plans to get that all sorted out here in the next week to two weeks. So um, generally I'm trying to look though, I would say earlier rather than later, just because there's softer opportunities in the markets earlier, especially with season win totals. You'll see NBA season win totals move pretty frequently, like two to three games over the course of an off season or a summer. And so I'm hoping I can you know, jump in before the season gets too near and take advantage of some of those. But uh, for now, I haven't actually dug in too heavily outside of we started talking a little more recently. And, and there are a few things that stuck out to me. So we can get into some of the details later, but uh, generally sooner the better, but because of football and the delayed basketball, um, it's, it's been a little bit more of a, an NBA off season for me. And probably one of the reasons it's been a little while since we spoke. Yeah. I think everybody's kind of done that. Like everybody needed a break. Like everybody needed yes, like a yes. hard, hard break. I think it was, what was interesting for me was, you know, I really stepped away after 
the draft, honestly. I worked pretty hard through the draft. I started, I took like a mini break at the end of the finals and then came back and worked really hard for the draft. And then afterwards, like I was on vacation during free agency because I'd already planned one before they announced that was when uh, I was going to be. And so I had like a very, you know, I I've, I got away in August. What's been interesting is like in September, I'm like fully back invested again. I've written uh, the first draft of all of the Eastern Conference win totals um, breakdowns that I do for action network. Uh, I've dug in on the Western conference. I'm writing those currently. Like I've looked at futures. We've done all the pods, uh, in previous weeks on MVP. Like I am extremely excited. I feel like I'm going to be better prepared, especially as a better going into the season than I have maybe ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. I want to ask you, and we'll have you on again after you run your projections closer to the season. I want to get you back on, um, for a segment again. Sure. I want to ask you, let's first start with like futures, in, I'm not asking for numbers, obviously, but just in terms of of a general comparison to your NBA bankroll, how much do you like to invest on futures and how much of those do you like to get in before the season rather than during the season? Ooh, this is a good question, uh, especially for people that are, are maybe trying to like do this a little more seriously than just to have some for fun money. Uh, for one, futures money is tied up for a long time. It isn't graded until after the season wins. Sometimes people forget that or don't really take that into account. And so uh, this is this is interesting. I think I was, until hmm, more recently, I was more conservative with how I attacked across all leagues, futures bets, and then week-to-week or day-to-day betting. And so I kind of divvied out certain percentages of my bankroll that were allotted for college football preseason futures and then college football week-to-week. NBA preseason futures and then NBA week to week. Uh, I probably should have been a little less stringent in that regard, just overall. Um, but the ra- the main thing you're trying to weigh and in, in the contrast here is, okay, I have a pretty big edge here on this season win total. Let's say it's, um, we might talk about this one later anyways, the Mavericks, right? It's like 48 and a half, 49 and a half in the market. I think it should be lower. I think it should be like 46. That's a pretty big edge. Now over the course of a season, when we talk about sample sizes, like you can be pretty confident in what you're going to get and what to expect over the course of 82 games relative to really in one game, anything can happen or let alone one game, one half or one quarter. Uh, like when we do those bet streams, like crazy stuff's always happening when you're firing like first quarters and first halves because it's just such a small event size and, and, and length. And so now when you can actually bet on something over the course of 82 games, I'm much more confident in my projection or my edge there. So you have to weigh then, okay, well, I'm more confident of betting a Mavericks under than maybe I would be betting against the Mavericks in one single game randomly in January. But also my money's tied up for months on months on end. How much ROI am I costing myself by maybe not betting as frequently game to game, day to day? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of this like back and forth where you're trying to figure out how much to put towards futures, how much to put towards the day to day. And um, I'll, I'll just say the way I did it early on, I was putting about 25% per league into futures and then it would just sit there. And uh, for college football, primarily, I wish I had done less and just bet more week to week because that just kind of compounds week to week if you're doing well. And so I think I, I, I mishandled that to some extent. Now for other people, it, it could be a little bit different, but I definitely left some money on the table. And I think I was being a little too heavy on the preseason futures 
um, especially in college football, just because for a while there, I had a pretty large edge uh, on, on college football stuff. But for NBA, I would say I've been pretty much on par regardless. So I, I keep a, I keep an 80-20 split in the NBA. So people want to kind of use that ratio. I think that's a fine comparison for most people. And just like, hey, take 20% of what you would bet or your bankroll for the, the year and put it into futures. And then now you have 80% to kind of play week to week, day to day. That's great. Uh, so I think it's interesting because I find myself more gravitating towards futures just because I've had without the benefit of a model, which is something that I'm like attempting to work through, but without the benefit of a model, it is really frustrating, especially in the NBA. I feel like it's very easy to cap it right and still to get it wrong. Yeah. That you, you just, I mean, there's, there's a reason why everybody talks about the NBA is such a difficult one to bet. And that's before you get into the, you know, you're five minutes before a game and it's like, oh, no, he was going to play, but he's no, no, not feeling it. He's not going to play tonight. And then your entire cap is wrong because that player was essential to everything. Let me just interject real quick too. Like in the year 2021, like it's even worse game to game variance just because one team can shoot 20% from three one night. And it doesn't matter how well you capped, what number you got. If your team shoots 20% from three on the amount of threes, or you go up against a team that shoots 47%, like you're just not going to cover. It doesn't matter. So that's why getting those advantages over the course of the season, like you're kind of alluding to here, you feel way more comfortable doing it that way. And I definitely agree. Yeah. And that's why I started narrowing in on the quarters and, and half of that last year is, is you were always kind of like, yeah, but that's such a small sample. And what I always would respond with was, yeah, but I feel better about <laughs> a finite number of things that can go wrong. <laughs> like this is yeah. like, I feel like, and then the odds are just the same that they can go wrong in the first quarter versus the third quarter. Um, but what would happen a lot is you would have, like, I would, I would be like, I really like the over here. I think that they're going to struggle defensively to stop the way that this team runs offense and they're going to get out and they're going to respond by getting out in pace. And that would be right. But then there would be like, and then the third quarter, they shot O of 19 from three. And you're just like, well, like, what am I going to do there? You know, shooting variance has always been the, the very plague of my existence. Shout out Fred Van Vliet. But in general, um, that's why I've like gravitated more towards futures because I feel like I have a better sense of, understanding how things play out over I've done a lot of research into how things play out over 82 games and how those things go. I, I have like, I also think and you, you were one of the person people that really clued me in on this. If you told me, do you think that the lines get sharper as the season goes on? I would have said like, well, yeah, I didn't not realize until I started working at action, how much sharper that rate declines after yeah. all-star. Yeah, all-star break is especially interesting. I think maybe you're alluding to this a little bit. I I actually stopped almost entirely betting NBA post all-star break um, probably like five years ago now. It just I, I just never won after the all-star break. Always was winning before, and so I just made the decision pretty easy for me. But then you actually outside of just wins and losses, I'd start betting totals I thought I had edges on, and like they just weren't moving my way anymore as much as they were previously. And that's really the ultimate telling sign if you're betting day to day is, hey, if you're betting an under 220 and it closes 218, like you're on the right track. If you're betting under 220 and it closes 220, uh, then you're just flipping coins and paying the VIG. And so, yeah, post-All-Star break, man, the market's just so efficient. Uh, and that's, yeah, the last five years I've adjusted and just kind of sucked it up. Didn't want to get um, too arrogant or like an ego trip and just say like, hey, if I'm losing after the All-Star break, I'm occasionally if I get some info on an injury, like I'll, I'll step out and bet something. But probably like on average three bets a year post-All-Star break really just wow. – situational yeah 
So I think one of the things I've been planning on this season is um, I'll probably still play MVP futures early because there's been an indication like last year, I think was a good example of this. I wrote in January, Hey, Nikola Jokic has sleeper value for MVP because his number was still like 14 to one. And I was just like, he's killing it. And the nuggets are still under 500 and they're not going to be under 500 for very long. I think that there are some indicators, but as a good kind of counterpoint to that victory lap is look, I, I thought Demona Sabonis was playing so well in that first month of the season. I was like, look, the Pacers are, you know, they've got a great record and they're winning games and Nate Bjorken has them actually with a modern offense. And Demona mm-hmm. Sabonis has been lights out. Like he's playing at an all-star level uh, there's a little bit of value on this and that obviously just like died. So there's all this time. What I do try and stress to people is look, the NBA regular season, just the regular season is six months and it's so many games. There's usually teams are three different teams in that span. And so one of the things I think I'm going to shift to this year is not play as many futures in terms of like, I like building positions on various teams and adding to them. Uh, I'm not going to play them as much early in the season, but instead of playing more games late in the year, I do think I'm going to shift to doing more futures because by that time you do have a wide enough sample and you have seen the matchups to where we could start to recognize, Hey, the bucks are going to struggle with the heat because of their shooting variants or Hey, the Miami offense is garbage. We want to stay away from them and maybe fade them. Uh, the Suns have absolutely crushed every good team that they're up against by late the season, the game efficiency may go down, but I still feel like that futures market even though it's tightened, still has a level of inefficiency. If, if there's, if you believe that there's actually a model of parity, which is, I think a, a big key to anything with the NBA, because typically it's like, Oh, there's only two teams that are going to win the title. I am somewhere in the middle on that this season. How about you? Hmm. So I saw, so just for people, for some context, Matt gave me a quick uh, little rundown before, the show and, and you you wrote a little note there. Just it just said forecasting parity, and so I'm not sure if this is the direction you're going with, but I think it's a really interesting point, and I think it is kind of all tied into how we approach betting futures, season win totals included. So I would I'll say this: if you were to go out look at all the all-in-one metrics, some of the guys out there doing all-in-one metrics actually run simulations that will project each team's season record over the course of the season. And if you have done that before or do it this off season, when you guys have time, you'll notice that they're really sandwiched. You're like, nah, there's no way the magic and the calves and the thunder are actually this good. And wait, the bucks, like, how are they not going to win 60 games? Like they're really sandwiched because going in, like from a simulation perspective with a model and you have these metrics and you're projecting them out over the course of the season, what you generally will find is like you're using that team's full roster, complete health. This is what they are for the next 82 games, right? For the season. And when you actually are looking at it, and I wish I had looked uh, at the end of last season, like what my best team rating versus the worst team, what's the discrepancy in a point differential or a point spread on a neutral court at the end of the season between the top and worst team versus the start of the season? Because what we see happen over the course of the season, not only injuries, which are really tough to project and predict, but you also have in the NBA, especially the last decade more so than others, teams that are tanking to get um, better picks in the potential lottery and whatnot. And so you'll have certain teams that are just better and more suited or more likely to start tanking at a certain point in the season. You'll have other teams that are willing to trade assets to try to improve their team now. So it's this game preseason trying to forecast parity. Look, at the end of the year, there isn't a sandwich. Every team isn't like 30 wins to 55 wins. We have the teams that win like 14 to 20 games. You have the teams that win 60 plus and you have to try to 
quantify and project out some of those uncertainties that we really don't have. And so forecasting parity, that was an interesting way to put it because it's really difficult, in my opinion, to do in a trustworthy manner when you're projecting um, for future. So yeah, you could go look at someone's all-in-one metric and say like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, the buck's definitely going to go under their wins. And just like, it's not going to go under very often. It just isn't. Like they're going to probably be healthy for most of the year. Mike Budenholzer is always getting the most out of his teams day in, day out. We've just seen it with all of his teams, even back to Toronto. So like, yeah, the model will probably say bet a buck's under, but I'm not betting a buck's under. And guess what? I'm not betting calves and magic overs. That's for <laughs> sure. There's going to be teams that are winning fewer than 20 games. So that, that you're right. Like there's a lot of parity, especially after Lakers nets, just from a macro view now. Um, about who could maybe step up and we could hit on a couple teams if you'd like on um, that could potentially be that team to kind of surprise, so to speak. But uh, I think just from a, especially season wins perspective, there's, you have to kind of diagnose that parody at all levels, like at the tail ends of these bottom teams and the top teams and trying to figure out who is more prone or more likely to be suited for this pathway X percent of the time they play this season, which even within that season, they're only winning X percent of games this much. Like it's, it's like such a leveling formula and problem to solve, but it's actually really fun. You can tell I'm getting excited talking it through just because it's, it's, there's so much more to it than just, Hey, these are the numbers. This is my projection. And I'm, you know, that's the Bible. It's scripture. I'm not going to change my opinion. Like there's way more to it. Like I'm not reliant on a season win total model which I should build one, but if I were, um, I would still be adjusting towards, I would be trying to build it towards a lot of what I, I work on in terms of, I often think about the regular, because I noticed this from doing playoff coverage as many years as I did, that the teams that were often the best in securing seating were not the best teams. They were the best teams at manipulating and, and controlling the regular season. Yeah. So you can have, an average win to like point distribution or even like a negative one versus the top the point differential versus the top teams. But it's fine. If you're absolutely annihilating and consistently winning versus the bottom teams, this is like a big part of my win total stuff is how do you do versus the teams that are worse than you? Can you be counted on to beat those teams? Um, and from a parody construct this season, I'm basically going from, I guess a, a bimodal distribution of, thin, very thin tails. And then a hump in the middle where I think that there'll be healthy chunks of the top three through six teams in terms of wins. And then a big drop off on seven through 10. Um, and then absolutely just like the bottom of the conferences are going to be awful. Like, I think the bottom of the conferences are just going to be terrible in part because of a lot of what you talked about, like the magic and thunder and rockets are going to tank extremely hard. Like they're just, they're, they're going to tank very, very hard and they have reason to, and they haven't, this is a lot of it is the NBA season. Like you have different incentives for so many teams. Motivation to me is the hardest thing about the NBA regular season night to night. And it's the hardest thing about win totals as well. Like everything about the regular season has compromised intention more so than any of the major sports, any of them. There's no sport. Good point. Yeah. There's no sport where you look at it and you look at the end of it and it's like, no, some teams are desperately trying to get out. Some teams are like, nah, we're good. We got three seeds. We don't really care. And then some teams are like, we actively want to lose. And that distribution I think is, is pretty difficult. Um, 
if, Real quick, the Knicks are an interesting case study just from that, what we saw last year. I'll be honest, just from a personnel perspective, I simulate, I haven't done it yet again. I'm going to get digging into it the next two weeks. The Knicks are not a 42-win team. They're just not. But you know Thibodeau is going to have them playing harder than anybody else in the regular season every night. And therefore, the Knicks did what they did last year. When your best players, Julius Randle and maybe a washed-up Kemba Walker and like Derrick Rose, like they're just not that good. But look, they're projected to be a 500 team, even a little bit better. Um, that goes perfectly to what you're saying is you're trying to diagnose a little bit more than just like the personnel on the team. Their effort will match that of the teams that are worse than them. And their effort will exceed a lot of the teams that are better than them that do not have as much of an incentive to try. Yes. And so like they just tick up I and mean, they you just add five wins and that's it. Like it takes you from 40 to 45 and an easy over at 42 and a half. Are there without modeling? Um, are there teams that you look at that, you, that as you kind of build priors that the models will then either confirm or move away from, are there teams that you look at from a futures perspective, whether it's a conference level, division level, or title level that you think uh, you're going to at least be very interested to see what the models indicate? Yeah, I got one. <laughs> Tell me, actually, I have two really good uh, talking points. Okay. The first one, a little more uh, laid back, fun, but I'm not even sure. Like I looked at two books and it's the same number. So I thought it was an air line. How disrespectful is it to Greg Popovich that the Spurs are 28 and a half? Yeah. Last year they played a reduced season of 72 games, right? They won 33. The year before that, it was a 71 game season. They won 32. And look, they've been down the last two years. They're not that much worse than where they were at the last two years. In fact, they added like a bunch of wings and bodies. Let me just pull up their roster real quick um, to make sure I don't miss anybody. I know they lost Patty Mills, I guess people, but they got like, um, they brought in Zach Collins. They took a shot on Doug McDermott. They're bringing in, who's been a pretty good score off the bench for in, uh, the Pacers for a while. Thad Young's coming in. And then they still have, you know, Murray and white and Lonnie Walker. And I, I look, the Popovich not getting to 29 wins. And by the way, speaking of one of the like mainstay teams, even post Duncan era that would beat the bad teams they were supposed to win. And maybe yep. they were 500 against the elite teams, the Spurs, like if they're better than the team they're facing more often than not, they're going to get that W. Um, I was shocked to see that at 28 and a half. And I'm not sure uh, what I'm missing from an eye test, whatever, looking at the board today, but I'm very intrigued to see uh, what my actual projection will be for San Antonio. Uh, I don't think it, they're definitely not an organization I envision punting and like tanking either, uh, you know, mid season or something. So that was one. And the other one was, I think uh, from a division standpoint in the Southeast, uh, let me just pull up a, a, a price real quick. I know the heat were a slight favorite versus the Hawks just kind of from a recency perspective and a market perspective. Uh, I still don't really know how the Hawks did what they did in the playoffs last year. I credit them and they don't even have DeAndre Hunter who, you know, they'll be bringing back and hopefully he's healthy. And um, I think he's a good addition to their team as a whole, but people remember what just happened. And they're like, Oh, Hawks, like Eastern conference finals. Like they're one of the best teams in the NBA. They're, they're not. And they already forget that the heat two years ago went to the NBA finals to themselves. And yeah, they had a similar type of, they got hot. Tyler hero went crazy. Jimmy Butler was doing his thing, but like they added Kyle Lowry. Uh, they also, I think, added a couple more big bodies. Uh, Markeith Morris, PJ Tucker. Tucker's good to have in a playoff. Like they're going to be set up pretty nicely as a whole. I think 
uh, the Heat are a little bit undervalued just within the division relative to Atlanta. And then just from a future standpoint, you can get them 13 to one to win the East. That's a team I'm looking at just if going down post, you know, after the Nets, that next tier is Bucks, and then it's kind of everyone else. Um, the Heat are a team, and again, they play Milwaukee well. They match up pretty well, and they've you know beat them before. That's that's one that um, stood out to me. Is people forget just what happened two years ago, and they're kind of caught up on the the hype from Atlanta and what they did this last year, and a really kind of weird setup in the playoffs. Anyways, that uh, you hate to discredit a team again. They earned it. They played well, but like Atlanta's not like a top four team or not even a top four team in the East, in my opinion. So that's where we're at with that. I think Miami's kind of just being overlooked after one year. Interesting. So let's go back to the Spurs for a minute. So I think one of the things that's key with me is that the on off numbers, which I put a lot of stock in because it's literally how did your, did your team beat the other team when you were on the floor? Mills was crucial for so many of those minutes, like his numbers on off the last four years were just absolutely huge. And so I worry a lot about it. So much of, I think with the Spurs is that everybody is an unknown product, whether it's Devin Vassell or um, even, I think still, still at this point, I think Derek white is largely an unknown, even as this is his fourth season in the league. Um, They're so young is, is part of it. Like Lonnie Walker still in his third season. Josh Primo is the youngest player in the league that they drafted with that pick that everybody was like, really? DeJounte Murray still in his fourth season. But if the Spurs coach them up and one of the, and those guys are, it's always like, wow, like the, the work has really kind of shown through. Then I think it looks a lot different. Um, I haven't started working on the West, so I'm not prepared to, to figure out whether I want to go, which direction I want to go, because I do feel like, man, like their best player is probably Derek white coming off an injury. That's or, fair. It's a good way to point it, pick it out. Yeah. yeah or does it like, I like the guys that they got, right? Like I like that young, I like, you know them. who might be the best player now who just played over uh, for the Olympics. Kelton Johnson. Might Kelton Johnson. Yeah. They like that, him that a lot. could be the like key X factor for them. Um, Atlanta. I'm on the other side of you. And I'll tell you, I, I, it's not necessarily recency bias. It's more built on, we talked about this last week on our podcast about coaching and how bad coaching brings teams down way more than good coaching helps. But I do think that the Hawks showed both sides of that coin last season that I think Lloyd Pierce specifically yeah. was holding them back and the performance after Nate McMillan took over. Look, I don't think they're going to be as good as they were to close out the season under Nate, but I do think that McMillan has a pretty one McMillan clearly has a good relationship with the players and they buy in. Um, the fact that that team really seemed to the only reason the playoffs matter to me with regard to their win total is Atlanta. I had real concerns about their chemistry because Collins was even barking at Trey young early last season. And it seemed like the playoffs did a lot of things for them coming together and going through adversity. And it felt like, that was the moment where Trey deferred enough to get everybody involved enough while also had so many huge moments that the rest of that team was like, all right, okay, you're the guy. Fine. You're the guy. He was like, he backed up all the talk that you've had. You're the man. Um, but also like, you know, I have a lot of, I have, I bet Trey for MVP a little bit. And my big concern, honestly, is like Bogdanovich taking up usage. Like I would be happier if it was just Trey. My MVP bet would be better if it was just Trey going heliocentric every single play. Uh, but I also think that that helps with their win total. Um, I think that they've kind of shown that they have like a, a comprehensive win. And then the other thing is uh, 
the the schedule for the Hawks is absolutely just juicy ripe. It is such an incredibly soft schedule. I was stunned when I started looking at uh, how easy they have it because um, last year they had a lot of injuries. According to Man Games Lost, they had the fourth most games lost due to injuries and the fourth most win shares due to injuries, most of that being DeAndre Hunter, who is on track to be back um, for the start of the season. They lost Okongwu, which I think hurts, but they have the fourth easiest rest-adjusted schedule per positive residual, and they have one of the lowest average opponent implied title odds. Uh, Noops, at Noops on Twitter, Alex Christensen was kind enough to share that, that data with me. Um, so there's, to me... That's the big combo of it is, okay, the Hawks play in one of the easier divisions because you have the Wizards and you have the Magic, and those are two bad teams. I think the Hornets are in the middle. Hornets, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, lower middle for Hornets. You have the momentum coming off of that season. The short rest does concern me, for sure. But I still look at it, and I think that the Hawks ultimately, especially at only 46.5, that's a lot of it, is like the number at 46.5, they can be worse than the Heat. At 50, like I, I don't mind the division bet for the Heat at all. Like I'm lower on the Heat for a number of reasons, but basically I did the work on Miami, and this is kind of what I came out to. I did all of the work, and all of the work was like, yeah, they'll probably be really good. And I was just like, I just can't buy it. Like for whatever reason, <laughs> I can't get past. Like I can't convince myself of my own analysis, which is a good indicator of how in my head I get with this stuff. Um, it can certainly be a team that just like not coasts, but you know, they, they navigate the regular season so that they're as healthy as possible yeah. in the, in the postseason, And they do finish second in the division. Absolutely. So that's one of those where I'm sure personnel wise, I'm going to sim that out and look, the heat are winning the division just from that nature more often than like minus minus one fifteen would pay. Mm-hmm. So it's going to say yeah. you should bet the heat to win the division, but all right. How do you account for like Jimmy Butler and projecting how many games he plays or Kyle Lowry, the guys that are on the back end, you know, the team's focused on the playoffs. And so that's another, again, one of those variables you're trying to uh, dissect. Speaking of real quick, I want to throw this at you. Uh, One more. Speaking of Kyle Lowry, the Raptors, that was another one that stuck out 35 and a half on Nick nurse and the Raptors. It's like their rosters that bad. They bring in a Goran Dragic and a uh, a I think right for that swap that they made. Um, they probably have one or two additions that I'm not even remembering. Uh, Chris Boucher can't play center the whole time. So uh, I know there was a center that they added. Oh, it was Ken Birch. Like it's a guy that they can just like kind of plug in at least to eat up some minutes at center. So Boucher isn't in the mix, but winning 43 and percent of your games, a Nick nurse team, which by the way, the Raptors had gone over their season win total in like eight straight years until last yeah. year, where it was a year they had to go play in a different country yes. as their home arena after yeah. a weird COVID year. Like now they maybe get to play at home for once and, the comfort level of that for all those players. Uh, I was surprised to see that one low. So since you did the Eastern conference, um, what are your thoughts on Toronto in general? I think my big key with Toronto is trying, again, we talk about judging intent. Masai Ujiri has not been, he's cagey, but he's also done enough media opportunities. And he's been asked this question about the Raptors. And he said, we're not trying to win for now. That's like a very big red alarm to me. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that I heard a tremendous amount of noise in free agency and in the weeks leading up to the draft about like one of the reasons I bet Scotty Barnes 
to go forth was because I heard that the Raptors were moving away from the ideas of when now moves and they were transitioning to planning a lot for the future. I think right now they are trying to figure out the most efficient path to title contention. And I do not believe that the core of this roster is how you get there. Like they would have to, it's basically an impossible position for them because you look at it and you say, well, look, if you add a superstar to this roster, they can probably contend. The problem is their most likely path to get a superstar is a trade. And in order to get that trade, they'd have to send the good players yeah, that would provide the backup core. And so if you game theory that out, um, that's my concern. I will say what I basically decided on them, and I, and I, I wrote this on, which will be up in the coming weeks on, on action, is I want to wait to see what their preseason looks like. If it's like, man, Scotty Barnes looks like he's legit. And then it's like, you know what? Malachi Flynn and Gary Trent Jr. look really good. I don't overreact to preseason results, but I do pay a lot of attention to who's getting minutes, who's getting long looks at, and who who is like, oh, hey, this guy looks like a lot different than he did last season. This guy, this young guy looks like he made a leap. If they got enough of those, then that's probably enough to get me nudged over to 35 and a half. Um, the, I have to count that Dragic is out. Like, I just have to assume that they're going to either buy out or trade Dragic. That's a standoff that continues to be okay. pretty ugly. Um, he's made it clear he does not want to be there, but he's also made clear like, Hey, I didn't mean like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to show up or I'm going to be a problem. Like I'll definitely come in, but I also have a hard time believing that Masai Ujiri is going to make him stay the entire season when like the path is pretty clear. He's going to get bought out or traded to Dallas. That's what's going to wind up happening. Um, but at 35 and a half, that Raptors line, the problem with that line, I think is that's basically the dividing line between, are you tanking? Or are yeah. you trying to are you trying for all 82? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like if the Raptors were to really go for it, can they win 43 to 44 games? Yeah, I think so. Like if they have enough things go their way and they get some Raptors fortune thrown in there and they get some growth from the young guys if Pascal Siakam gets past his issues with nurse. Um, they're also a team I know that's talked a lot to Houston about, or to Philadelphia rather about Ben Simmons. And I don't know what that deal looks like. I don't think it looks good for an over because it likely means that several of those pieces, like I talked about, are involved in that trade. Sure. Siakam's probably gone or whatever else. So that's kind of the thing is like, do I think Ben Simmons makes the Raptors better long-term? Yeah. Does Ben Simmons with less shooting around him make me feel good about the over? Probably not. So for me right now, I want to wait to see what they look like in preseason. The number seems low relative to the quality of player they have. It seems high relative to what they've stated as their intentions for the season, if that makes sense. So it's kind of in a happy medium spot in that regard. Mm-hmm. And you'd likely just stay away if you had yeah. to. I yeah. actually didn't, I hadn't realized or heard for whatever reason, the Goran Dragic uh, stuff. Real so, quiet. Yeah. If, if it ends up just being that he's traded in the first few weeks or maybe it's a month or two, uh, he's obviously a piece that would be helpful when, you know, you lose a Lowry to Miami. So yeah, good points for sure. Um, before we go, wanted to ask you real quick uh, as a Lakers fan, but also just as a better, do you think you're going to get better value than, than the numbers that the nets and the Lakers are right now to win the title? That's like going to be the leading question on most of these things. Lakers and nets are going to dominate the preseason mm-hmm. title picks, etc. We've gone over a lot of our, team futures stuff in previous episodes and we'll do it more before the season, but I want to get your idea of just from a, a sensing the number, because obviously your win total is going to, going to connect to 
like the models that you'll do will obviously project to some correlation between the title, but we know that the regular season and playoffs are so different. I was curious if you think, you know, I still think that this Nets number is too long or if you think they're too short and there's a chance, better chance in season for those opportunities. So uh, let's put it this way. And I think it's probably the talking point going into this NBA season that will be least discussed enough, but how do I articulate this? I think ultimately the Nets at like plus 225, 230 range to win it all, when it comes down to it, will look like the best and easiest bet anyone ever (laughs) made. Or if Harden or KD get hurt, it'll be like, oh crap, like that sucks. They got hurt again. They just can't make it. They haven't been healthy. But what like what they did anyways against the Bucks, basically without Harden and Kyrie for the majority of that series. And they add Patty Mills, speaking of a guy who just crushes the metrics and the numbers all the time. Uh, like this, that might just be the easiest. I don't anticipate that really getting better for you unless, and we don't have to get into the, the nature of this, but I've heard really weird legs and rumors to the Kyrie Irving might actually retire from a few different people. Oh, wow. And uh, if that were to happen, then of course the price gets better. But that's like such a for one, a rumor, but it kind of lines up with sometimes he was just like taking time off because, and he's talked about it and like, and mentioned it in passing in the past. Like, Hey, maybe I just am done with uh, basketball. I want to focus on like politics or, you know, black lives matter stuff, whatever it may be. And, you know, all power to him if he decides that, but that would be my one concern. But again, that's like such a small chance, I think still in the grand scheme. So I don't think the Nets number is ever getting better. The idea is, Hey, they're just hopefully healthy in the playoffs. And if that's the case, they're just so much better than anyone else in the East. Uh, it's going to be a great price. And even in my opinion, if they were to play the Lakers, I think they would be a favorite. So then getting to your Lakers question, I think they brought in Russell Westbrook, a bunch of other kind of filler pieces for the sake of having someone that can kind of give them that Thibodeau Knicks edge night to night where they need to grind out more wins and not be the seven seed going into the playoffs and hope that they're still healthy and LeBron and AD can still take some nights off here and there if they need to. But uh, I think ultimately, if I was looking at the Lakers, let's just assume Lakers and Nets are healthy. You can get four to one on the Lakers best price I see in the market to win it all. You can also get two to one on them to win the West. I think that there is no reason to gamble in the NBA finals against the Nets that the Lakers beat the Nets. Mm. Uh, It's, more or less a coin flip. Maybe even the Nets are a little bit better. And you're gambling also that LeBron or AD don't get hurt in the finals too. Like, let's just eliminate that super high variance event. Just bet on the Lakers at 2-1 to one to win the West. I don't see that really getting much cheaper either, especially um, with a team like the Clippers without Kawhi most likely. And some of the other ones that have been in the mix and been, like, for example, the Clippers last two years have been one of the favorites out of the West. I don't know if the Suns run is duplicable. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things that, yeah, I think now's the time to bet both teams, again, outside of injury luck. It's just prices that are um, probably not going anywhere because they're just that much better than the rest of the pack. I don't like the number enough, and it annoys me that they've priced it where they have. You can get Nets-Lakers at BetMGM as the finals matchup at plus 375. And that one... I like betting the finals matchups throughout the season. It gets you a, a pretty juicy number pretty commonly. Um, Nets to beat Lakers, if you want to jump all the way there, is okay. uh, that's 750. Um, your variance, th- that's probably the, the, the key here is like, if you're going to bet Nets Lakers to make the finals, you might as well bet Nets Lakers, Nets to beat Lakers and then just hedge back on the Lakers to win if it gets to that point. 
Um, it's interesting to me, uh, last thing, and then I know we can wrap it up. So just from that standpoint, 375, and then Nets to beat the Lakers is exactly double, right, at 750. Yeah. And here you can get the Lakers 4-1 to one or West 2-1 to one plus 195. It's basically half. They're basically saying that Lakers-Nets finals, the market is, is an absolute coin flip. I think the Nets are better, man. Like they just have so many pieces and fluidity and stuff offensively that you, I mean, this is, you're going to think I'm just being a Lakers fan, but like Alex Cruz has been like their best wing defender, like point guard defender of the last two years. And now he's on the bulls and like, so not having him, I'm actually kind of concerned like with Russell Westbrook as a whole Westbrook's never really been, a positive impact winning player, unless he was playing with Harden and AD, excuse me, KD. And I'm not sure AD and LeBron have enough, just them too, with some of these other fill-in pieces. So I'm, I'm surprised that the market sentiment right now is, hey, that's like a 50-50 coin flip match. And again, that's why if you're going to go Lakers, I would just prefer to look West. Or like you're saying, if you want those two to match up, I think the Nets have an edge in that matchup, assuming full strength both sides take a shot at plus 750. I actually like that. I think that's... That's a pretty good one. My Nets refutal, and I, I do, like, there is that part of me that's rattling around, like, is this just wishful thinking? Do I just not want this to be a decided season? Because I hate those. I want there to be a level yeah. of openness. Um, but I will say this. I went ahead and looked up the final four games of the Bucks nets series. And, like, okay, you know, they went three and one. And it's like, well, yeah, the, the Nets were – hurt like everybody was hurt they didn't have Harden. they didn't have Kyrie. joe harris missed every shot joe, yeah. yeah joe harris missed every shot that wasn't the number i looked at though i looked at the defensive rating because the nets won in those first couple of games they got their lead in large part because their defense overperformed expectations to an insane degree so if we break down that series in real detail here's kind of what happened uh the bucks had a very buck series where they couldn't hit anything they couldn't they couldn't shoot they couldn't get out of their own way they could they constantly were just like nope we have open shots and we're just going to miss all of them the nets were trotting out a front line defending Giannis Antetokounmpo with Blake Griffin <laughs> and getting positive defensive results and just when that series turned the nets guys all were hurt and so the offense wasn't good enough. And like, that's a counter is the Nets might've won anyway with their offense because they have so much firepower, but the Bucks got their defense going and the defensive rating differential was so huge in those final four games. Essentially, if like the best way I can kind of boil it down is that the Bucks solved all of those defensive problems. They had a 102.2 offensive rating, um, the Nets did in the final five games of the, of the Buck series. Okay. Without two guys, but they had that number jumped from a 107.7 defensive rating to a 112.2. That difference is significant. If you are, you're having to beat the Bucks and having to put up an offensive rating higher than 113 on average over the course of a series. I'm not saying the Nets can't do it. Look at their talent. I am saying that's difficult, and the Nets, the Nets defense, I don't think matters versus twenty-eight teams in the league. I think it matters versus the Bucks. That's one team I think that the defensive okay. stuff does matter. Um, that's not to say that I like betting the Bucks more because I think that at this point you just like you're any situation. You're if this plays out the way that we all think it does, where the Nets are going to rack up a sixty-plus win season dominate, look like the absolute best team, and like the title is is cooked, but you've still got this idea in your head that. 
no, I think the Bucs can beat them. You just wait them in the series. There's no reason to tie up your money now on the Bucs. You're not going to get better. Like, you will get a, a much better number relative to injury variance, certainty, matchup, et cetera. Just wait for that Bucks nets matchup. For sure. And then look at it then. That's that's the kind of real key is, like, there's not great value on betting the Bucs right now because the Nets are going to be such a favorite. You'll still get a good price on a great team later. Yep, that's definitely an option. And I think that's generally the case, too. Uh, with like even my heat thing, I was like looking at prices like 13 to one, even though I think the heater, maybe that next tier team that could do it. Honestly, you could probably wait, make sure they're healthy come playoff time and, and bet them time. each series, roll it over and get paid at least 13 to one. Like odds are, and then you don't have to tie up your money either. So yeah. you definitely, it's, it's important to weigh yeah. those options. Or, or, or even or just wait till the start of the playoffs, right? Like then I think is like a really pretty soft right. spot. Yeah, you're yeah, able yeah. To look at, if you're able to look at the matchups and go like, Ooh, Miami's got a really good lie here. Like they had, like they have a matchup advantage each of these series. I think that works out great. All right. That's Preston Johnson sports cheetah on Twitter. Make sure to follow him and check out his work at that TV. Preston. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, Matt. That's going to wrap it up for buckets this week. My thanks to Preston Johnson for joining me. Always a good time talking to him. Next week, we'll start diving into more details on the NBA season and how to bet it. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Check out our fantasy shows. Always a great time with Dan Titus and company. Until next time, thanks for joining me on Buckets.